0: Welcome to the show, folks. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time, Jesus cast out a demon from a man who was blind and dumb. So that after Jesus had cast out the demon, the blind and dumb man both spoke and saw. This was a major event because the demon-possessed who couldn't speak were not curable in the eyes of the religious leaders because in their procedure for casting out demons, they first needed to get the demon to identify itself. So they could command that particular demon by name to come out of its victim. So after this, the crowds were stunned. And a great throng of people came from all over the place to get in on the commotion of what happened. But some religious leaders were also there. Some Pharisees. Some scribes. And they didn't like what was happening. So they conjured up a lie to confuse and distract the crowd. They said, this man only casts out demons because he himself is possessed by a demon. But Jesus knew their thoughts. So he responded to these liars in front of the crowds with flawless logic, peeling away the absurdity of their lie. He said, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. So if I cast out demons by the power of a demon, then Satan's kingdom has become disunified. But if I cast them out by the power of the Holy Spirit, then it's a different kingdom that's come upon you. A kingdom that apparently you weren't ready for. And that was the whole point, folks. These individual religious leaders, these Pharisees, were not ready for the Messiah to show up. They knew who he was. They knew he was the Messiah. But it conflicts with their plans, whatever they are. Jesus knew this. That's why the Scripture said his response to them was made while knowing their thoughts and being well aware of their intent and purpose. The intent and purpose was to deceive the crowd and scatter Jesus' followers. That's why Jesus said, he who isn't with me is against me. And he who doesn't gather with me scatters. But then Jesus turns his attention back to the crowds and his followers and begins to give them a little education on demons, Satan, and how it all works. He tells them that nobody is able to go into a strong man's house to plunder his property until he first restrains the strong man. And only a person stronger than the strong man can restrain him. In that little parable there, Satan is the strong man and the planet Earth is his property. Only one stronger than Satan can first bind Satan so that Satan's property can be plundered. And with that parable, Jesus proves that on the entire scale, starting from the smallest to the highest. On a small scale, a good example is the demon possessed. You can't cast out demons by any power other than the power of God. All other attempts to cast out demons without the power of God always result in making the situation at least seven times worse. Whether you're talking about mediums or psychics who think they can drive out demons or religious leaders who think ceremonies and ritualism drives out demons. None of that works. Only one stronger than the strong man can restrain the strong man himself. Then he can go in and plunder his property. But on a grand scale, as high as you can get, another example of that parable is the rule of Satan over the planet Earth. Satan is the strong man who rules over his house, the planet Earth. Only one stronger than the strong man can restrain him and defeat him. And that's exactly what's going to happen, folks. Satan is destined to be defeated by Jesus Christ personally. Man can't do it because the strong man is too strong for them, be it physical ability or his mastery skill with cunning deception. When it comes to creating lies and the tools necessary to make those lives believable and acceptable, Satan has always been at least three steps ahead of the human race. Always. Always. For more than 150 years, Satan has fooled the scientific elite with the theory of evolution. It's one of the most preposterous lies ever devised. The very lie itself is laughable. But the irony is that the very people who accept and promote that lie are the very last group of people that you would ever think would believe it. Scientists. People who study facts. Hardcore evidence. Cause and effect. But no. No. And Christians have fallen into two camps because of all of this. Some Christians try to marry the theory of evolution with the account recorded in Genesis by making Genesis a symbolic allegory. They do that because they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their scientifically elite friends. The rest try to educate themselves about science so they can point out the folly of evolution without getting into faith. And that's real easy to do. All you have to do is study DNA. And it's because of DNA that scientific Christians have been able to punch a devastating hole in the theory of evolution. But Satan's not worried about that, folks, because he's already got a brand new lie that's even more preposterous than evolution, just waiting to be used to replace evolution when it becomes obsolete. It's already out there. It's been out there for more than fifty years, but it's only now that it's been beginning to take root in the scientific community. But I don't want to get into all of that now. The point is, only one stronger than the strong man can overpower, defeat, and bind the strong man so that then he can plunder his house. Jesus is the one stronger than the strong man. And Jesus says, Otherwise, when a demon is driven out of a person, it roams around, searching for rest. And finding none, it goes back to the person it possessed before, finding it empty. So it goes back in, and takes with it seven other demons more evil than itself. So that the last state of that person is worse than the first. And then Jesus says, So shall it be with this wicked generation. Because the Pharisees there persisted in saying that Jesus was possessed. They kept saying it over and over again. And Jesus knew their thoughts. They were evil, wicked men attempting to derail and deceive the crowds. So Jesus told them, All manner of sin shall be forgiven unto men. Blaspheme the Son, and even it shall be forgiven. But blaspheme the Holy Spirit, it shall not and cannot be forgiven. Because not only was it by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus was driving out demons, but it was by the power of the Holy Spirit that all men were gaining truth. Because John chapter 16 verse 13 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. And it's the Holy Spirit's personal mission to declare and reveal the truth. And he never testifies of himself, but only testifies what he hears from the Father and only honors and glorifies the Son. That's what was going on here when the Pharisees barged in to purposefully hinder the truth. Because they had traded the truth for a lie. Romans chapter 1 tells us that when men do that, God gives them up. And John chapter 3 tells us that those men have been judged already because they loved the darkness more than and instead of the light. Who is the light? Jesus is. Later he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can get to the Father except through me. Jesus is the truth. The Holy Spirit is the bearer of truth. So if you love the darkness more than the light, that is Jesus Christ. If you exchange the truth, that is Jesus Christ, for a lie. God gives you up. You've been judged already, and that cannot be forgiven, because the forgiveness that God offers is purposefully being rejected. That's the infamous unforgivable sin. You can't commit that sin by mistake or in a moment of temporary insanity. It is a continual, purposeful act of rejection. And when it becomes blasphemy, is when you actively take sides against the truth and attempt to deceive others. That's what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. And that's what these Pharisees were doing. Now, while all of this was going on, Jesus' mother, brothers, and sisters were there trying to get to him because they had come to the conclusion that Jesus had gone mad. Because after Jesus' fame exploded and everything became huge and controversial, they thought he had taken things too far. So they were there trying to take him by force. But they could never get to him because of the crowds. And at one point, some people said to him, Hey, your mother, brothers, and sisters are here wanting to speak with you. But Jesus said, Who are my mother and brothers? And then stretching his arm around to his followers, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For all those who hear the word of God and do it are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. And that's where we left off last time, folks. Now, this next reported event is recorded by Matthew in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 to 23. Mark, in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 29, and Luke, in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 18. All three of these guys record that Jesus was sitting by the Sea of Galilee and began to teach when once again a great throng of people showed up and gathered all around him. Luke points out that they came from town after town. So Jesus got into a boat and sat in it, while all the throng of people remained standing on the shore. And Jesus remained there close to the shore, and he told them many things in parables. Now folks, this is a switch. A parable is a short story by way of illustration and comparison. And the common view as to why Jesus began speaking in parables was to help make things clearer and easier to understand. That's the common view, but that's not the biblical view. We'll find out later that Jesus began speaking in parables to keep the truth exclusive to his disciples so that they would understand, but the crowds would not. And this method of teaching is something that Jesus only now begins doing because something has changed. Something has changed. From here on out, you'll notice a complete 180 in the way that Jesus communicates to the crowds and gives answers to serious questions. When members of the crowd randomly come up to him and ask him how to get into heaven, he'll either give them a cryptic parable, or he will just simply tell them to obey the Ten Commandments. Which is strange, because that's not what he told Nicodemus back in John chapter 3. If you'll remember, back in the beginning, when he spoke to Nicodemus, he wasn't cryptic. He was straightforward and told him, unless a man is born again, he cannot ever see the kingdom of God. And when Nicodemus asked him how a person is born again, Jesus was still straightforward with him. He said, just as Moses lifted up on a pole, a symbol of sin being judged, so that the Israelites would look upon it and have their sin debt transferred over to it, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on a pole, also as a symbol of sin being judged, so that not just Israel, but the entire world would look upon it and have their sin debt transferred over to him. And then with that, we have the famous John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he even gave up his only begotten son, so that whoever believes on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's how you get into heaven. And that's as straightforward an answer as you can get. But you won't get that kind of direct response from Jesus anymore from this point forward because he's gone beyond the point of revealing the good news. The good news has been revealed. It's now just a matter of that good news being accepted and believed There's no more proof needed. There was at first, but he's made that proof. So now, it's no longer an intellectual exercise. It's now a matter of the heart. You'll notice when people ask him, how does one enter heaven? He won't say, you must be born again. Instead, he'll tell them to obey the Ten Commandments. Because without Christ, that's what you're left with. The law. One guy even has the chutzpah to tell him, I have obeyed the Ten Commandments. So then Jesus tells him, go then and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. Then the guy walks away hanging his head down between his legs. And then Jesus says, well, looks like it's easier to get a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to get a rich man into heaven. What a turnabout. Listen to that cold sarcasm. Nothing about grace. Nothing about being born again. He didn't run after the guy and tell him, it's all right. Just believe in the one whom God sent and you'll get into heaven. He could have told him that, but he didn't. One of Jesus' disciples even got a little freaked out and asked him, Lord, if what you're saying is true, then how is it possible that any man can be saved? Then Jesus told him, you're right, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. See, Jesus knows the heart. They already know the gospel message at this point. It started with John the Baptist in the desert and then continued with Jesus for the past, what's almost two years by now. They already have the answer to their question concerning how someone gets into heaven. You believe in the one whom God sent and rely on him as a balance transfer for your sins. They already know that. So if you already know that answer and don't accept that answer, then when you ask the question again, the answer will be obey the Ten Commandments. Sell everything you have and follow me. Do what Jesus told you to do in his Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, you must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And if you can't be perfect, then cut off your hands and pluck out your eyes to keep yourself from sinning. That's what you're left with, folks. Only two ways to get into heaven. Be perfect, just like God, or allow Jesus to represent you as one who is perfect and one who paid your sin debt. So with this turnabout, Jesus begins teaching in parables, and he specifically tailors these parables to be understood only by his disciples, those who were already saved, those who were already followers of Christ. And he gives several parables throughout the rest of his entire ministry, but right here he begins with a series of parables given back to back, one right after the other. Good old Matthew, the former public's official with the skill of shorthand, recorded every bit of it, got it all down the entire series. Mark recorded the first parable, skips the second one, and then recorded the third. And Luke only recorded the first parable. Now, for those of you who like to keep up with neat little mystic hints that are dropped into the text by the Holy Spirit, you'll remember that the number seven always symbolizes something that is total and complete. Doesn't mean holy. There's seven deadly sins. So it doesn't mean holy. It means complete. The seven deadly sins is a complete list of completely deadly sins. The beast in Revelation has seven heads, which means he will be in complete control. It says each head will have seven horns. A horn was a symbol of power. So when it says seven heads with seven horns, it means he will have complete control with complete power. So the number seven does not denote holiness. It denotes completeness. But, because it does denote completeness, it's often associated with holiness, because holy means completely perfect. That's what the word holy means. There were seven days of creation. It was on the seventh day that God completed his work and made it holy. Israel prophecy, all throughout the Old Testament, is riddled with sevens. A week is seven. We have a week of days. There's also a week of weeks, a week of months, a week of years. And Daniel recorded prophecies of a week of weeks called the 70 weeks of Daniel. In the New Testament, Jesus' family tree, recorded in Matthew and Luke, is saturated with sevens and things evenly divisible by seven. So his bloodline is complete. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well with seven phrases. She spoke to him in six phrases, indicating that she was incomplete. But he was bringing her completeness. One of the symbols for the Holy Spirit... Is the seven candled lampstand symbolizing the sevenfold Holy Spirit? When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it alludes to the one who spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Jesus makes seven I am statements. Since the number seven denotes completeness and the number six denotes incompleteness, it always bothered me that the Bible was composed of 66 books. That always bothered me because I know how careful and how precise God is with the number seven. God stresses the number seven all throughout the Bible to symbolize completeness. And I mean, he stresses it hard. Look at Jesus' genealogy. My gosh, it's absurd with the sevens in it. Computers can't replicate what the Holy Spirit did in that text. And yet, the Word of God is composed of 66 books. And I brought it up to Crystal one night while we were chewing over various things like we usually do on Fridays and Saturdays. And after I shared that with her, I could see it in her eyes. It had never occurred to her before, and it bothered her, too. So we sat there and thought about it for a little bit and chewed over it. We even pondered over the possibility that maybe there are either 11 books missing or there are 11 books yet to be written that won't be written until the Millennial Kingdom. and had all kinds of weird conjectures. And then Crystal said, wait a minute. The book of Psalms isn't one book. It's a collection of five books. And if you'll look at any competent study Bible, it will show you how it's actually divided. It's actually five books, not one. So I thought about that and did the math in my head about the same time that she said, so that makes it a total of 70 books, not 66. The Bible is 70 books. And when she said that, I thought about Daniel's 70-week prophecy, but then I remember that the book of Revelation isn't one book either. It's eight books. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ plus seven letters from Jesus to seven churches. So with all of that, the Bible is 77 books. And after I said that, we both laughed and felt proud of ourselves for figuring that out. don't know if it's conclusive or not, but for what it's worth. But anyway, the point is, now that Jesus has decided to begin teaching in parables, we have a series of parables here given back to back, one right after the other. Guess how many? Seven. So with these seven parables put together, each parable means something significant all by itself. But collectively, in the group of seven, they will show us something even more. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give away the secret, at least one of the secrets, before we get into the parables, because this will make it more fun. Seven parables, right? Parables that were specifically tailored to be understood only by his disciples, right? Only to those who were saved. After Jesus rose from the grave and went to be with his Father in heaven, he left orders to his disciples to spread the word. And then there was another guy that Jesus personally appointed named Paul. We don't see him until the book of Acts. And the major chunk of the New Testament after Acts is made up of personal letters that Paul wrote to groups of Christ followers throughout Asia. We call those Christians. Paul wrote to groups of Christians throughout Asia that he was well acquainted with, and those letters were instructional, correcting, encouraging, rich with doctrinal truth, addressed specific problems within their community, answered specific concerns and questions, and so on and so forth. Of all the groups that Paul wrote to and he wrote to several guess how many of them have the letters that were written to them preserved by the Holy Spirit in our Bible? Seven. So with all of Paul's letters we have something that is total and complete. All of the letters that Paul wrote each meant something significant all by itself. But collectively in the group of seven it shows us something more. And it turns out that each parable that Jesus gave in this series of seven parables that we're fixing to get into. The point behind each specific parable is continued in the letters that Paul wrote to a specific group. You can directly link the first parable Jesus gave to Paul's letter written to the Ephesians. You can link the second parable Jesus gave to Paul's letter written to the Philippians. Jesus' third parable to Paul's letters to the Corinthians. You can link all seven parables directly to the letters that Paul wrote to seven churches. Paul wasn't a mystic, so I don't think he was trying to do that. Well, guess what, folks? It doesn't stop there. After Paul's writings were finished, John wrote the book of Revelation. And by that time, Christianity had been around for some time now. I mean, it had grown nearly half a century. But in the book of Revelation, before John gets into the end-time scenario, the plagues, the bowls of wrath, and all that good stuff, He's simply given orders to record seven short little letters addressed to seven individual churches throughout Asia, dictated by Jesus himself. Jesus himself has something to say to seven churches. And they're not the same ones that Paul addressed. One of them is, but the rest are different. And each letter that Jesus dictated was specifically addressed to a specific church at that time. And each letter addressed specifically what was right about their group and what was wrong, what was commendable, and what needed a little more work. And each letter meant something significant all by itself. But collectively, in the group of seven, it shows us something more. And it turns out that the point behind each of Jesus' letters to a specific church is an even further continuation to a point behind each of his parables. So these seven parables that Jesus is about to give, they're amplified by Paul in his letters to seven churches and then amplified again by Jesus himself in his own letters to seven churches. Now what makes this really neat is that even though each of Jesus' letters is addressed to a specific church that literally existed in the first century, it turns out that the conditions of each group that Jesus addressed is representative of an era of church history. So that all seven letters lay out prophetically the history of the church from the last half of the first century all the way up to the present day. If those letters were presented in any other order, it wouldn't be true. So with that added little extra to all of this, the parables themselves, once linked to the seven letters, are also prophetic of an era. The first parable we're about to get into is the parable of the sower and the soils. It's a parable about spreading the seeds of the word. And with that parable, we get all kinds of insights as to how the seed takes root, how it grows, and what either prevents that growth or slows it down. But on a prophetic scale, no wonder it's the first parable, because it's about the beginning. The gospel is new, so it's being spread. The apostolic age. How cool is that? Always pay attention to that number seven. There's usually a surprise waiting to be discovered. And as long as we're bringing up mystical properties with numbers in the Bible, many, many chapters later, Matthew will record five more parables. Matthew didn't record them here because Jesus didn't give them here. But several chapters later, Jesus will give us five more parables, and Matthew will record them. So when you've finished with the book of Matthew, add those five kingdom parables with the seven kingdom parables given here, it gives us a total of 12 kingdom parables in all. I don't know if Matthew did that on purpose, but he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience who was well-versed about the coming Messianic kingdom. So when you finish with the book of Matthew, you have a total of 12 kingdom parables in all. And that's kind of neat because the kingdom will be made up of 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus personally appointed 12 apostles. The number of Jews who are protected and sealed to survive the Great Tribulation is 144,000, which is 12 times 12,000. The measurements of everything in the kingdom will be 12 this and 12 that. Kind of neat. But anyway, starting in Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, Mark chapter 4, verse 1, and Luke chapter 8, verse 4, it says that Jesus was sitting by the Sea of Galilee and began to teach when once again a great throng of people showed up and gathered all around him. Luke points out that they came from town after town. So Jesus got into a boat and sat in it while all the throng of people remained standing on the shore. And Jesus remained there close to the shore, and he told them many things in parables. And he said, Give attention to this. Behold, a sower went out to sow seed. And as he was sowing, some of the seeds fell along the traveled path, and it was trodden underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some of the seeds fell on rocky soil, and almost immediately it sprouted, but when the sun came up, it was scorched, because it had not taken root. It dried up and withered away, because it had no moisture, and it had no depth. Some of the seed fell among thorns. Seed sprouted, the thorns and thistles pressed together, and grew up with it, and utterly choked it off, and suffocated it, so that it yielded no grain. But other seed fell into good soil, and brought forth grain, and growing up, increasing, and yielding a crop up to thirty times as much, some sixty times as much, some a hundred times as much as was sown. And Jesus called out and said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear and listen. Folks, this is known as the parable of the sower and four soils. And fortunately, we don't have to do any digging to interpret this parable, because Jesus himself is going to explain it here in a minute. But first, Jesus is going to respond to his disciples who ask him why he's now teaching in parables to begin with. Mark and Luke's record of his response is short and sweet, while Matthew's is more in-depth, as with all conversations recorded by Matthew. Luke records in Luke chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, it says, When his disciples asked him the meaning of this parable, he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries and the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables, so that looking they may not see, and hearing they may not comprehend. Mark records in Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, it says, As soon as he was alone, those who were around him with the twelve apostles began to ask him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been entrusted the mystery of the kingdom of God. But for those outside of our circle, everything becomes a parable, in order that they may look, but not see and perceive, and in order that they may hear, but not grasp and comprehend. Now, folks, Jesus is about to drop a bomb on us here and say why he's keeping it unperceivable and uncomprehendable to those outside the circle. And I'm going to read it first from the King James. He says he's doing it, lest they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Now, folks, I spent over three hours cross-referencing several translations of the last part of that verse. I dug out my classic Strong's Concordance, went over to blueletterbible.org, and did a word-for-word lookup, read several commentaries, listened to a few audio commentaries. But this is one of those verses that presents a real serious problem, because it sounds like it's a contradiction of 2 Peter chapter 3. When Peter talks about the timing of the end, when God raptures up the Christians off the earth before sending his wrath upon it, Peter admonishes the readers to his letter that God's prolonging of that event isn't because he's slow, but because he's patient and long-suffering and not desiring that any should perish, but that all should turn to repentance. Well, if the Father doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should turn to repentance, then why is Jesus going out of his way to speak in parables so that those who don't understand him won't repent? That's the feel you get from this. But that can't possibly be what this really means, can it? The only competent translation other than the King James that brought me any comfort was the Amplified, and I say competent because there were many modern English translations that completely whitewashed this verse. Most of our modern translations do that. They go out of their way to keep the scriptures from being offensive rather than accurately interpreting what was originally written in Greek. So there were a lot of modern translations that made me feel better about this verse, but I didn't trust them because I know what those modern translations are all about. I don't want to feel better just for the sake of feeling better, and I want to feel better after understanding what this verse really means and how it fits with the rest of the Bible. The competent modern translations, such as the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, and the ISV, they're very competent, but they didn't translate this verse in any way in which the end result was any different than what the King James said. But the Amplified Bible made one suggestion based upon the research of Kenneth West, who was a professor of New Testament Greek at Moody Bible Institute. He published a volume of word studies from the original New Testament Greek. And it's his conclusion that where it says Jesus is speaking in parables, keeping it uncomprehensible to those outside the circle, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins be forgiven, It's his conclusion the sin that Jesus is referring to is their willful rejection of the truth. And that made me feel better because not only does it resolve what at first seemed like a contradiction to 2 Peter chapter 3, but it fit right in line with the unforgivable sin that just transpired in Matthew and Mark. Because they willfully rejected the truth. And Jesus brought up the doctrine of the unforgivable sin. So I felt better about this, but I wasn't completely sold just yet. So then I went over to Matthew's record of this conversation and read what it said. And, folks, I wish I had done that first because it explains everything. Thank goodness for Matthew and his excellent shorthand skills because, like everything else, he got every bit of this conversation down. And what Jesus said confirms Kenneth West's research. This is in Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10. It says, The disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he replied to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets and the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, has what, folks? The knowledge of the secrets and mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus just spoke of. For whoever has that knowledge, to him will more be given. And he shall have more in abundance. In other words, spiritual knowledge. For whoever has it, to him will more be given. And he shall have more in abundance. But from him who has not... Even what he has will be taken away. Wow. So from him who doesn't have that spiritual knowledge, even what little he does have, or what little he thinks he has, it will be taken away from him. Why? Let's keep reading verse 13. Jesus says, This is the reason that I speak to them in parables, because having the power of seeing, they do not see. And having the power of hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they grasp and understand. In them indeed is the process of fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall indeed hear, but never grasp and understand. And by seeing you shall indeed see, but never perceive. Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, folks. Then Jesus says, For this nation's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are heavy and dull of hearing, and their eyes they have tightly closed Okay, let me interject there for a minute. So it's because of their heart that they are the ones who are making their ears incapable of hearing. And it's because of their hearts that they themselves have tightly closed their eyes. Why do they do that? Jesus continues. He says they do it, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. So technically it's not Jesus' fault that they don't understand. The heart chose not to believe. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 1? That their hearts were darkened so that then they became fools. See, their hearts are not darkened because they're fools. They're fools because their hearts were darkened. Jesus said in John chapter 3, The light has come into the world, but there are those who choose to disbelieve because they love the darkness more than the light. So when the light comes, they'd run off into the darkness. It doesn't make any difference how hard you look for the light. You can't see the light if you're hiding in the dark. But those who love the light, those who are not repelled by it, they're attracted to it, so they come out into the light. And they bathe in the light and constantly want to glare into the light. So the more they look into the light, the more light they will see. Let's back up to verse 13 and read that again. Jesus says, This is the reason that I speak to them in parables, because having the power of seeing... They do not see. In other words, they're capable of seeing, but they choose not to see. They have the power within themselves to get it. They have the power of seeing, but they choose not to see. This is the reason that I speak to them in parables, because having the power of seeing, they do not see. And having the power of hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they grasp and understand. In them indeed is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall indeed hear, but never grasp and understand. And by seeing, you shall indeed see, but never perceive. It all starts in the heart. And from the heart, what did Jesus say? From the heart, of the mouth speaks. And with this, we can conclude that not only does the mouth speak, but from out of the heart, the eyes either see or don't see. And the ears either hear or don't hear. And then Jesus says, for this nation's heart is waxed gross. And their ears are heavy and dull of hearing. And their eyes, they have tightly closed. Lest at any time, they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted. And I should heal them. Why is the unforgivable sin unforgivable? It's because they won't let him forgive them. They should be forgiven and healed. They should be converted. They should understand with their heart. And they should see with their eyes. And they should hear with their ears. But their heart is waxed gross. And their ears and eyes, they have tightly closed, preventing the understanding from getting through, and thus preventing the forgiveness from getting through. Then Jesus says, But blessed are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous men yearned to see the things which you have seen, and did not see them, and to hear what you hear, and have not heard them. Now there he's talking about all those from the past whose heart was like theirs. But because of their place in history, they didn't see or hear what they've seen and heard. Abraham, Moses, David, Elisha, all those guys. They would have loved in their times to see and hear what Matthew, Peter, John, and the rest were witnesses to. Bless are your eyes because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. Truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous men yearned to see the things which you have seen and did not see them, and to hear what you hear and have not heard them. And then he said, according to Mark chapter 4, verse 13... Do you not discern and understand this parable? How then is it possible for you to discern and understand all the parables? And then according to Matthew and Luke, Jesus said, Listen then to the meaning of the parable of the sower. The meaning of the parable is this. And now Jesus is going to explain to his disciples the meaning behind the parable he just gave about the sower and the four soils. And his explanation is recorded in Matthew chapter 13 verses 18 to 23, Mark chapter 4 verses 13 to 20, and Luke chapter 8 verses 11 to 15. But we've talked so much here since he gave the parable. Let me go back and read it again before we read Jesus' explanation. Here's the parable. Behold, a sower went out to sow seed. And as he was sowing, some of the seeds fell along the traveled path and it was trodden underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some of the seeds fell on rocky soil and almost immediately it sprouted, but when the sun came up, it was scorched because it had not taken root. It dried up and withered away because it had no moisture and it had no depth. Some of the seed fell among thorns. Seed sprouted, the thorns and thistles pressed together and grew up with it, and utterly choked it off and suffocated it, so that it yielded no grain. But other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, and growing up, increasing and yielding a crop up to thirty times as much, some sixty times as much, some a hundred times as much as was sown. And Jesus called out and said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear and listen. Now here's Jesus' explanation. He says, The seed is the word of God the sower sows the word but there's four kinds of soil here that the seed falls into soil type number one some of the seed fell along the traveled path and was trodden underfoot and the birds of the air ate it up those along the traveled path are the people who have heard the word but when they hear Satan comes at once and snatches away the word out of their hearts that they may not believe and be saved This is Jesus' fancy way of saying in one ear and out the other. Now the reason why Satan is there snatching up the word from their hearts isn't because they're victims. We often read this and think of these poor people who would be saved if Satan wasn't so ruthless picking up the word. But don't misunderstand what's going on here, folks. Jesus said the seed is the word, right? Then what does that make the soil? The soil is the heart. See, Satan attempts to snatch up the word from everybody's heart when they first hear it. But there's only one kind of soil in which he succeeds. And it's this first soil here. The kind of heart that Jesus just said is waxed gross. So not only does the word not take root in the soil, the seed of the word itself isn't even permitted to stay. So Satan snatches it up. These are the people that no matter what logic you use, no matter what emotional techniques you employ, no matter how the seed is dropped on this particular soil, it goes in one ear and out the other. Actually, even that old phrase isn't accurate. It doesn't go in one ear and out the other. It attempts to go in one ear, but it bounces off, and before it even hits the ground, Satan's picked it up to carry it away. Willfully blind and deaf. Soil type number two. Some of the seeds fell on rocky soil and almost immediately it sprouted. But when the sun came up, it was scorched because it hadn't taken root. It dried up and withered away because it had no moisture and it had no depth. Those along the rocky soil are the people who, when they hear the word of God, at once they receive it and welcome it with joy. But these have no root. So they only believe and endure for just a little while. For at the first sign of trouble... Trial, tribulation, affliction, or persecution because of the word. In other words, Satan comes. Instead of snatching the word away, he puts it under intense heat. They receive the word fast with joy. So Satan put his heat on it fast with joy. And afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. Immediately. They don't stop and say, wait a minute, let's dig into the Bible for some answers here and see what's going on. No, they just throw their hands up in the air and say, oh well, I knew it was too good to be true. No roots. And I've done folks like that. Boy, they're excited. They've got a Bible with them. They're chomping at the bit. Jesus this, Jesus that. Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit that. Amen. Hallelujah. I mean, it's nauseating. Every time I see people like that, the up in rocky soil. Because when they first sprout up, they won't calm down. They've got to keep that emotional high running 24-7. they got to keep themselves psyched up. They attend three church services on Sunday, another service on Wednesday, another one on Friday, then another one on Saturday. And every time they see you, they're inviting you to join them. There's always a meeting. There's always a service, a place, something going on somewhere that they want you to join them in. And they won't take no for an answer. You actually have to hurt their feelings to get them to leave you alone. And they're passing out tracts to everybody. They're leaving them behind videotapes at the video store. They're dropping them in bathrooms. They're all over the place. And their entire verbal speech is riddled with biblical sounding cliches. They call you brother. Hey, Brother Josh. Hey, look, my brothers and sisters, it's Brother Josh. Praise Jesus. Thank the Father. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. And then three years later, you find out on the news that he's been arrested for child rape or murder or selling drugs. And you think to yourself, how did you go from where you were to where you are now? What happened? Now, the question that always rises when you talk about these folks is, were they saved? That's always the first theological debate that every Christian gets into when they first start exploring the Bible. Unfortunately, you can't avoid it. And you need to do your own research, pray about it, and search the Scriptures to come to the truth yourselves. But it's a continual debate that's held passionately. There's two extremes. One side says you can get saved, and then because of circumstances like this, you can lose your salvation. But that doctrine violates entire books of the Bible. You have to completely ignore the book of John and Romans and Ephesians to believe that nonsense. But the other extreme is that you'll hear phrases like, Well, I believe in once saved, always saved. Well, I do too, but how did you define the term once? If you mean people like this here, who receive the word at once with excitement and passion, but then wither away because of the heat. I've had to disagree with you. Because it clearly says here, the word didn't take root. Which means it never really entered the heart to begin with. It was all external. What you see are the blossoms above the rocky soil. You can't see its roots. You can't see the heart. But God does. So I believe in once saved, always saved. But I believe the word once is defined by what happens in the soil, in the heart. Did the word take root or not? And I find it interesting, the Amplified Bible here even adds the word moisture. It hadn't taken root to absorb the moisture of the earth. In other words, it didn't get watered. What is water biblically a symbol of? The Holy Spirit. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? No man can enter the kingdom of God unless he is reborn in the Holy Spirit. So people like this were never saved to begin with, folks. And it's always a shock to us because we don't see the roots. No roots. No roots soil type number 3 some of the seeds fell among thorns and when the seeds sprouted the thorns and thistles pressed together and grew up with it and utterly choked it off and it yielded no grain the people who receive the word among thorns are the people who hear but as they go on their way they are choked off and suffocated with the anxieties of life and the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life the distractions of the age the cravings and desires of pleasures that are nothing more than illusions All of it works together, presses in together just as thorns and thistles do to choke out and suffocate, and the person becomes unfruitful, brings no fruit to perfection. Now, folks, all of us are in danger of falling into this category here because all of us have to deal with the distractions of the age. This isn't talking about people who are not saved because unlike the first two soils, here the seed actually took root. So the seed here is actually planted. Its roots are in the soil, being nurtured by the moisture of the soil. But all of us, and I mean every last one of us, has to deal with Satan's distractions. Be they enjoyable distractions, such as TV and entertainment, or an active social life, a career, or other distractions that we don't enjoy, but they constantly absorb all of our attention, all of our efforts, all of our strength and energy. And that can take the form of all kinds of things. You could put a career into that category because you're trying to meet financial obligations that never seem to get met. Or maybe you're politically active. The future of the country is at stake. You know, all of it works together. That's why Jesus so eloquently describes it all as thorns and thistles that press in together to choke out the bearing of fruit. To bear fruit, you have to grow upward to rise above the thorns and the thistles. Now, you're never going to get rid of the thorns and thistles. You have to grow above them. And that's tough to do until it's a habit. And it's something that you always have to choose to rise above. Sometimes you'll succeed. Sometimes you'll fail. The goal is to grow upward as much as you can so that the thorns and thistles won't completely choke off the ability to bear fruit. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Even if it's just one little yield, that's still bearing fruit. The thief on the cross probably didn't think that he bore much fruit because he just got saved hours before he died. But what he didn't know is that his testimony would be recorded by the Holy Spirit in the Gospels so that it would be retold over and over again for the next 2,000 years. So he yielded a huge crop that he didn't know anything about until he got to heaven. So don't worry about the quality of fruit or the quantity. That's God's problem. All you have to do is grow above the thorns. The fruit will come all by itself. When we get to heaven, the very first thing we will face is a judgment seat of rewards. We won't face a judgment against sin because that judgment was already made at the cross. But we will face a judgment of rewards. And don't think this is going to be a casual nominal event. All of us will receive rewards based upon the fruit that we bore. And none of us will bear the same amount of fruit. But the last thing you want is to be someone who bore no fruit because you allowed the thorns and the thistles to completely dominate your growth. If that happens, the judgment seat of rewards could be an emotionally painful event because that's when we will see our lives and every opportunity and every action or inaction the way God saw it. And with some of us, Jesus is going to express disgust. He said in Revelation, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're neither cold or hot, I'll spew you out of my mouth. See, if you were cold, then you'd be of the first two soils, which means you weren't saved Then Jesus wouldn't have to deal with you at all. If you were hot, you'd be of the fourth soil. That's coming up here in a minute. And he'd say, well done, faithful servant. And then you'd get rewards for all of your fruit bearing. But being neither cold or hot makes Jesus sick. Because the only difference between you and the thorns is the roots. That's the only difference. Because instead of growing upward to bear fruit, you grew sideways to intertwine with the weeds, the thorns, and the thistles. And they grew with you to choke you out and suffocate you from bearing fruit. And learning the reality of how we grew and didn't bear fruit is going to personally upset us to the point where it says we will be crying and gnashing our teeth. Jesus brought that up earlier when he first started talking about the lack of faith that was in Israel. People think that he's talking about hell. No, he's not. It's a result of being confronted with the reality of what could have been but never was because of the distractions we continually chose to yield to. Now, don't get too scared or depressed about this, because Jesus also says he will personally wipe away all of our tears from off all of our faces. So our depression will not be permanent. But I don't want to go through any of that. Do you? Escaping hell is great news. I mean, it really is. But once that's been dealt with, we've got other things to look forward to and other things to work for. You don't work for your salvation. But growing? Yes, that requires work. Soil type number four. But other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain and growing up, increasing and yielding a crop up to 30 times as much, some 60 times as much, some a 100 times. Those along the good soil are the people with an honest and good heart. Having heard the word and understood it, they receive it, they keep it, and they bring forth fruit with patience and yielding a crop up to 30 times as much, some 60 times as much, some a 100 times as much has been sown. And all with patience. And then Mark and Luke record this follow-up in Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 25, and Luke chapter 8, verses 16 to 18. Jesus said, Is the lamp brought in to be put under a peck measure, or under a bed, and not to be put on a lampstand? No one, after he has lighted a lamp, covers it with a vessel, or puts it under a couch. But he puts it on a lampstand, that those who come in may see the light. For there is nothing hidden that shall not be disclosed, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come out into the open. If any man has ears to hear, let him listen and let him perceive and comprehend. Be careful, therefore, how you listen. The measure you give will be the measure that comes back to you. In other words, folks, what you hear and receive will depend on how you listen. Listen. The Amplified Version translates this, The measure of thought and study you give to the truth you hear will be the measure of virtue and knowledge that comes back to you, and more besides will be given to you who hear. And then Jesus repeats what he said before, For him who has that spiritual knowledge will more be given. And from him who does not have that spiritual knowledge, even what he seems to have will be taken away. And then Jesus wraps this parable up with the following summary. And Mark is the only one who records this. Evidently, it made a big impression on Peter. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a man who scatters seed upon the ground and then continues sleeping and rising night and day while the seed sprouts and grows and increases. And he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe and permits, immediately he sends forth the reapers and puts in the sickle. Because the harvest stands ready. So now, Jesus is focusing on the sower of the word. Before, he covered the four soils, and then the four different types of results because of those four different types of hearts. But here, Jesus is now focusing on the sower of the seed, which is the word. Those of us who are out there throwing that seed around, we have no idea what kind of soil it's reaching, and we have no idea what's growing, how much is growing, what kind of fruit's bearing. have no idea. But then one day we get glimpses of it here and there, and it stuns us. We look at it and say, what, huh? How did that happen? This Founding Word podcast that we're doing here. I have no idea what this is doing. The chat room at best has around six or seven listeners. The archives show higher numbers. In the span of a week, it might reach about 50. But then one day I get an email from somebody and find out that somebody's using these in their Bible class. So those are people who don't register in our little Internet chronometers. Or I'll get an email from somebody who listened to a podcast from two years ago who used to be agnostic but now reads the Bible every day. We just don't know what God does with that seed. And when we do find out, it's obvious that we didn't do anything. I mean, we threw out the seed, but look at what God did. And this requires patience. It's God's problem. You cast out the seed, let God do the rest. And that concludes the parable of the sower and the four soils. For those of you who want to dig deeper, you can link this parable to Paul's letter to the Ephesians where he gets into all kinds of rich doctrine that's directly related to every little piece of this parable. And then you can go to Revelation chapter 2 and read Jesus' personal letter to the Ephesians where by that time they've taken the spreading of seed so far that they've lost their first love. They took it too far. They're still spreading seed, but they've become so obsessed with the kingdom that they no longer have time for the king. And of course, from a prophetic standpoint, both Paul's and Jesus' letters to the Ephesians linked with this first parable are representative of the first church era, the apostolic age, which is kind of neat. And that's where we're going to leave it for today, folks. It's funny, I thought I was going to zoom through all seven parables in one show and then get into a big miracle that Jesus performed, but it looks like we're going to be spending a little more time on these parables, because there's a lot of meat in these. So we'll continue right from where we left off and get into the second parable next week, folks. Until then... We're out of here. Take care.